This Much We Know is a podcast offering an honest and informative perspective of the realities and motivations of setting up a social enterprise. We will be joined by a number of charity leaders and social entrepreneurs whose trading models work to end homelessness. We will be sharing their stories, tips and of course their face palm moments. This morning, we're joined by Steve Weiler, our guest. Really good to have you with us. Welcome. We tend to let our guests do their own introductions because it's a bit safer. So do you want to say hello, who you are, what your experience are, just a little bit about you. It'd be really good to sort of get started. So hi. Yeah, so I work freelance now. And among other things, I help to convene a social change network called A Better Way. But my interest in social enterprise and homelessness goes right back to the, well, the early 1990s. And at that time, I was I was I was running Homeless Network, which was actually a precursor of Homeless Link, uh, working with with uh, charities in in central London. And of course, there was lots of good work going on then, and you know, and particularly getting people off the streets and out of what were some you know dreadful large hostels into better quality accommodation, and and beginning to do some good work around tackling addictions and uh, mental health and other things. But there were very few organisations that were doing much around getting people into work or even what was sometimes called meaningful occupation. But a few of them were having a go at that and were believing that that also could be a route out of homelessness at that time. And that seemed really interesting. And there were a few people talking about social enterprise then. So this is back in 1992, 93, that kind of time. So... So I remember I organised a conference around social enterprise just to explore this a bit with with people from from across the network, and it actually it actually um, attracted quite a lot of interest, but it was also very controversial, and and there were definitely quite a few people who denounced the whole thing quite quite um, vociferously, on the grounds that it was it would lead to exploitation of homeless people in, in badly paid jobs. And other people were saying, it, well, you know, business, goodness sake, has no place in, in the world of charities. Um, and some people thought it was some kind of right-wing right wing plot to distract from government's obligations to provide decent homes for people. Um, and, and quite a lot of people said, look, this is just a, a flash in the pan. It's a fad and it will soon pass. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that it hasn't passed. It's not a fad. I've found out subsequently that social enterprise in different forms has been around in this country and and elsewhere around the world for hundreds of years. And yeah, so so that was the early 1990s. And here we are 30 years later. And it does feel it does in many ways feel more relevant than ever. And there are still some of those doubters around, but maybe a few less than there were at that time. Oh, fantastic. We've got a really experienced guest with us today, haven't we, Murphy? It's brilliant, Steve. I was trying to think what I was doing in 1992, but let's not go there on, on this episode. Uh, so interesting, some of the things you touched upon around exploitation and people, yeah, a little bit suspicious of enterprise, I think is, yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's a, there is some of that around still, isn't there? But majority have sort of moved beyond that and have seen there's been some really good examples of people that have done it so well now. Well, it's important to say that social enterprise isn't the answer to everything. I mean, sometimes it's been presented by governments or, or particular organisations or individuals as if it's the only way forward to address a social problem. It's not. And there is immense value in other types of activity, including in more traditional charities. But it for sure has a big place. And in, in my view, the more the better. I think you've touched on something quite interesting there. Um, you know, a lot about the, the enterprise development programme, the kind of 
you know, was the was the starting point really for us looking at this podcast and and also for the programme as a whole, you know, using social enterprises is about encouraging sort of diversity of model, you know, having different different ways of doing things and finding the right model that suits you know what your outputs are going to be and um, and what your income looks like so we're hoping to kind of shed light on the the different possibilities of social enterprise and, and when they suit and when they don't but yeah we're really excited to have you on so many questions to ask I can feel myself already going away from my list as always <laughs> from your experience working with with both charities social enterprises what have been your highlights I think there've been many there've, there've been many times when I've come across um, an organisation that is doing um, some form of social enterprise. And I thought, wow, you know, that, this is quite awe-inspiring. And sometimes they're, you know, very small, under-the-radar things, um, which um, have kind of really, you know, struck deep and become memorable for me. At other times, they're really big-scale things. I think, my goodness, you know, this is this is astonishing. I was lucky enough um, in about 20 years ago to go on a, a trip with a bunch of other people to look at some social enterprises in the United States. And we looked at things, a whole stream of different things along the west coast of the United States. And, and we went to Seattle. Um, and in Seattle, there was something called the Lighthouse. And it started off as a very traditional, conventional charity about 100 years earlier, working with people who were blind or partially sighted. And it had done in all those previous decades, it had done things like basket weaving and stuff like that, which which is all very well, you know, but it doesn't change lives, really. There's a couple of people on the board of the charity, including a woman who's the wife of Mr. Boeing, who ran the Boeing aircraft industry, who founded it. So she said, well, can't we create something that connects to this big company, this massive company? can't we create some kind of enterprise that's producing things for this company? And they did. So they started setting up production lines for um, for bits of aircraft that would be part of the supply chain for the Boeing, you know, the massive Boeing aircraft company. And they did it on a kind of, you know, carefully on a small scale to start with, and it built up and built up. And they found that with the right support, people who were blind and then also deaf blind the people who are both blind and deaf were perfectly capable of producing to the highest specifications required with the right support around them stuff that aircraft needed and, and and this kind of manufacturing thing started developing it became a huge enterprise and still is it became the center for the whole of the united states deaf blind community because here was real work real meaningful occupation here was a chance all sorts of other things were going on there was um, specialised housing developed and a whole community grew up around it. So the Seattle Lighthouse became a centre for a whole community across the across the United States of America, based on this simple proposition that with the right support, people that were otherwise were, you know, basket weaving could um, build aeroplanes. And I, I thought that was stunning. Mm, that's an awesome story. Me and Simon are always edging closer to wanting to go to America because there's so many amazing enterprises there that, that sort of have these, yeah, really interesting models. So you're, yeah, you're definitely tempting us there. We're on, we're on the hunt for a free airfare. Just, let's, just get that, <laughs> let's just get that out there now in case anyone's listening that is interested. Uh, we would love to hear from you. I think what you've highlighted, Steve, is just the, the power of enterprise when it's done well. It really can transform whole communities and people's lives and everybody can can thrive from that and can and can succeed from that and i think that's why i'm so keen on it in the homeless sector because i think 
part of our work as a sector is about actually how do we help people recover from homelessness and then and then have lives that they want to lead and want to have post homelessness and employment is just such a big part of that if you can if you can get employment in an organization that actually takes care of you gives you good conditions and and, and treats you well it, it can be life-changing and really help people settle mm. and, um, and aspiration as well you know it, it's yeah. i think being part of that enterprise culture of you know what can we do how can we get you know grow and and it sort of taking those risks to yeah be more aspirational so aptly named as well the lighthouse it feels so suiting given the given the story i guess on the flip side of that then steve have you with your sort of experience have you been around and, and seen a few enterprises not do so well so can you think of a couple that where you think oh here we go again it's going to be like that or you know those those classic examples where you think what on earth were we thinking when we'd set off on that on that enterprise I, there, there have been a few haven't there um i mean it's, it's inevitably the case that a lot of enterprises won't flourish um if we think about the commercial sector you know most most startup enterprises fail probably less so in the social sector because there's perhaps you know that bit of extra drive not to fail um so that the the success rate seems a bit higher but of course a lot of things won't work out and that's that's the nature of 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 any um new venture isn't it really or perhaps they will work for a little while and then they'll peter out after after a bit so so I was I was on the board of a homeless charity in London called Thames Reach, which is actually a wonderful organisation. You know, it does fantastic work, incredibly respected for its work, particularly around street homelessness in London for over many years. And it, it's had a go at social enterprise, and it hasn't always worked. And that's been quite interesting for me. So there was something that did work quite well, and that was called MIMO, moving in, moving out. And the idea there was that people that Thames Reach were working with who'd been homeless could provide a decorating service so that when so that when a housing association was was moving someone into a new flat Mimo would come in and do the decoration find out what that person wanted in their flat and do the decoration for them and that was a nice idea um, and it and it played quite nicely into what some people that Thames Reach were working with the kind of occupation they wanted to do and it and it was you know there was a um, a kind of credible you know, small scale, but fairly, you know, useful um, kind of line of business there. So it was working in all sorts of respects. So that was a nice, a nice venture. One that didn't work and turns out to put a lot of effort into it over quite a long time um, was something called Street Shine. Um, and this was this was based on something actually also from America. It was based on somebody had noticed in America people who do shoe shining in in public. Do it, do it with real panache and flair, and it becomes almost like a kind of street art form. Um, and some shoe shiners can get really good money, apparently, in some parts of America. So, so somebody thought, well, let's have a go in the UK. Let's do that in the UK. Let's create a really professional, kind of high-value, flamboyant shoe shining business and train people who've been homeless you know, used to live on the streets, for goodness sake, to, to be the people that deliver that. And it makes them independent and it gives them money and, they, and, and, you know, lots of good ideas there. So they had a go at this. There was someone who was enthusiastic and he started training other people. And, um, and they even got some very large companies interested in the city and who were willing to have, you know, homeless pe- people who'd been homeless and shoe shiners in their foyers, 
these you know great glass buildings and and perhaps walking around the trading floors um offering shoe shining and things like that but it didn't work it didn't work and and there were a couple of reasons for that it never really took off and, and there were a couple of reasons and one was perhaps the most important one was that it just sent out the wrong signal you know the the idea of someone who's been homeless kind of at your feet shining your shoes in our culture maybe in america possibly i don't know possibly it's different but in our culture that doesn't send out a good signal it, it just doesn't it's too uncomfortable for people on all sides i think that was the main reason really and and the yeah and i think there's some lessons there which you know that the underlying message you convey through your enterprise actually really matters and if it's that message is off in some ways then the thing won't work uh, and also the, the kind of obvious point that we should never assume that because something's worked in one place or one context or one culture that it would work in another that often is not the case things some some things <laughs> translate and are transferable you know, it's often often things to do with values i think that translate best but sometimes a specific enterprise just doesn't translate you can't just necessarily import something that's worked somewhere into another context mm. i think i think we see that even with sort of service delivery you know the the rural versus urban um regional differences you know that we have to acknowledge those and it's it's so easy to go great that looks fantastic you know let's try it here um and yeah i think we we are getting better at kind of looking at the the sort of more regional landscape first you also touched on something that I'm quite interested in, you know, the, the idea that in the business world as a startup, you know, likely as it is, is that you, you're probably going to fail statistically. With the with a social enterprise space, when you've got that social impact, you know, say if you have, I don't know, three or four years and then you have to close up shop. In those three or four years, the impact that you're making is probably going to, you know, have a monumental impact on the people's lives that you're working with. So, is it is it failing or is it that you've got this kind of time limited model that that isn't going to be sort of yeah a forever a, a long term thing but is it still worth doing um if something lasts for for a year or 5 years or 10 years um or even 50 years and then fails is it a failure not if it's added value in that period not if it's genuinely um made a contribution to a wider social effort of change in people's lives of course not it's not a failure if it's if it's kind of struggling along maybe for years and years um, but never really takes off you know never really either generates the kind of surpluses that can be put to good use elsewhere or adds value to the people involved in it then then probably it is a failure um, so a lot depends on an assessment of what the value added is during the period in which it operates but I, I i kind of agree with you people think that when something goes down or something's closed that is a kind of proof that it has failed that's not always the case is it no i don't think so you know i think there's some some examples of wonderful organizations that have you know changed many lives and 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 then things change you know the world is constantly changing and things that once had impact might not anymore and actually the best thing is to kind of go great we had a good run Let's let's leave it there and, and make space for something new. So, some, something that I was I was researching the kind of history of community-based social enterprises, and I discovered that in the 1790s there were um, a series of cooperative um, mills that were set up by working-class people, um, and it was in response to 
um, uh, famine conditions. There was shortages of, of flour because of a, um, Britain was at war with France and for various other reasons. There were shortages of flour. Prices were massively going up. People couldn't afford the bread and people were going hungry. And people responded to that by setting up flour clubs to start with, kind of mutual aid flour clubs to, to, to buy the flour in bulk and get it a bit cheaper. And then they started in some places building their own windmills to process the flour. And in a couple of places, they went even further, and this is the most extraordinary thing, they, they used steam-powered windmills, which was the latest technology of the time, very expensive in their terms to build, and they, and they introduced a kind of a version of community shares to raise the funds from their own community to, to do it. Um, now, some of these um, kept going for decades afterwards. Um, there, there were some that... Um, a few at least that that probably survived for about 70 or 80 years operating as community run steam powered flour mills and then eventually eventually they kind of faded away you know other technologies came in the demand wasn't there you know um, the trade shifted in different directions um, were they a failure when they finished my goodness no i mean they were most fabulous example sadly forgotten about now but most fantastic example of what people in the most adverse conditions could achieve themselves um, and i think there should be blue plaques put up to those places um, as fantastic success stories what you've what you've touched upon is the way that social enterprise cooperatives respond to social economic activity so stuff that's going on so there's huge pressure around cost of living and that sort of stuff going on right now as we're sort of recording this what do you think is going to be the sort of most challenging sort of elements of the next decade i guess that's that's such a hard question isn't it if we you know if only we knew the answers to that i think we, we're dealing with um great volatility i mean that's that's obvious and it, it wasn't just the pandemic that's made us think about that it was happening already but um um, things seem to be shifting a lot in, you know, kind of macroeconomic terms, in terms of how we organise ourselves as society, um, 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 in terms of what we believe um, is possible. Some of the, some of the, you know, the problems that we face, we we didn't people, uh, well, a few, actually some people did, but most people didn't foresee the the a pandemic. Um, we we knew that, you know, we've known for a long time that. Um, that climate change and migration and all these things can create, you know, massive cataclysmic events. Um, you know, think about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment and um, how appallingly awful it is and how things can get out of control so quickly. Um, many, I'm saying all this because really to say that even for kind of small local social enterprises, um, they're operating in a world of great uncertainty. Um, so I think that one of the things that many organisations are thinking through is that they have to take a different approach to their, their planning and their future. And they have to put much more concentration on how they make themselves an organisation that is really capable of kind of thinking smart and adapting rather than having a very finely tuned uh, plan with lots of, I don't know, KPIs and all that nonsense, you know, um, to to kind of justify their activities. That's not what it's about, I don't think. It's, it's about having a, a sense of um, broad purpose and an ability to be 
receptive, you know, to listen well, to engage the right people, to you know, understand what you know the the kind of core strengths of, of your community are and build on that. I think that's probably organizations that really get that are going to be the ones that do best, I think, in what's a very, very uncertain and volatile mm. world. I really like that you said listen well. I think that's really key. Um, you know, that we are we are yeah, listening to those that that, that that know more and have different ideas. I think one of the things that we're seeing is this, you know, charities, particularly sort of grant reliant charities, you know, three year multi year funding is the the golden the golden egg really, isn't it? And in these uncertain environments, those long term contracts are changing. Maybe not all the time, but we are definitely seeing, you know, shorter term sort of aims. Do you think that the the sort of need to be flexible for organisations in terms of changing combined with the with the shorter term funding opportunities is going to have an impact on the ability for charities social enterprises to to recruit long-term staff um you know to carry out longer term strategic endeavors i'm not sure i think i think one thing i would say is that in my experience you do need some people involved with any organization that have been around for quite a time it doesn't mean that everyone should be in fact that can be obviously unhealthy you know organizations can can get stuck if there's no new people coming in and no kind of fresh outlooks. Um, but you do need people that are around for the long haul. Um, and particularly if you're engaged in any kind of social change activity, you know, most forms of social change do take time um, to come to fruition, do take time to flourish, and that includes social enterprise. And you, you, you definitely do need um, that ability to maintain um, whether it's people as volunteers or paid staff um, to maintain people in organisations that that can bring a long view. Will that be more difficult in the funding climate going ahead? I don't I don't know. I do think that there are things that funders and investors definitely need to do better than they than they than they have done. Um, it isn't to say that all the problems that you know we have in the social sector are to do with funders and investors. They're not, but but. Um, they can play a big role for for good or for bad. We've seen some good things recently, I have to say. I really, really like the way that London Funders, which is the kind of collaboration of the independent funders in London and the local authorities and some others, um, work, they, work, they worked in the pandemic. They, I think they really pulled off something very good. They created this kind of central hub, a portal, um, so that people could just apply once and then all the other funders would look at them. And that was very sensible, but they... They also, many of the funders took the view that they would kind of drop all their or most of their requirements, most of their funding criteria, and basically just get behind as much as they could what the organisation said was needed. So if the organisation said something was needed and was close to the ground and could express that convincingly, they would just fund it and drop all, all the criteria and conditions and so on. And I just thought... That was so impressive. They did that in a crisis. And if that could continue beyond the crisis and become the kind of more general way of working, it kind of turns things on its head. It means that, you know, the running is made by people close to the front line that know what is really needed rather than people sitting in more remote offices and kind of dreaming up what social change should look like. So that's that seems to me to be really healthy. I love what School for Social Entrepreneurs has been doing around match trading they've introduced as, as you know very well they've introduced a new form of grant making that, that that is basically a way to reward 
organizations that manage to achieve an uplift in their trading and the more uplift they achieve the more grant they, they can claim um, and it's just a, a very nice way to use traditional grant money in a different way to incentivize people to be entrepreneurial um, and it seems to work really really well i know homeless link you've used it in some of your programs and it seems to have been pretty good i'd like to see a lot more of that kind of thing going on um, and i'd definitely like to see a big shift in the way that social investment social lending operates to be honest it's been shameful um, how much of that has gone to has not worked at all or just gone to the wrong places i mean, i i took a look a few years ago i think in 2017 i took a look at where social investment was was flowing and and it was something like only um, 15 percent of all the social investment in the country was flowing to areas exp experiencing deprivation you think that it'd be the other way around you know then it would be 85 percent would flow to those areas and 15 percent to the more wealthy areas well it was the wrong way around and i also found that that around 4% of all the social investment was going to small scale organisations that weren't able to offer collateral for their loan. So couldn't, couldn't provide security. And only 4%. And, and, it's, and the implications of that are pretty dire. So basically, I, I felt that it, I said so at the time that it meant that if you if you were working in a, if you were working in a deprived area with a deprived community, um, if you were from a small scale organisation and you couldn't offer security on your loan, then you could just about forget about social investment. And I think that if you were also a black led organisation or an organisation working, you know, with, um, and and led by people from other marginalised communities, then then your position was even worse. Some of this has been highlighted um, recently. The uh, Victor Adwale's report has highlighted some of these problems, I think, very usefully. And the Access Foundation has done good work in the you know the last few years to try and address all this, but a lot a lot more is needed. Yeah, no, I I would agree. I think that diversity in in the investment space, let alone social investment, you know, is is clearly an issue and something that that needs to be um, you know, we need to see more action. There's, there's been lots of thinking and conversations, but I, I do I do feel there has been a shift in the last two years and, and, and there is, you know, implementable practices that we can take away to, you know, move forward and, and, and create a more diverse, um, not only sort of strategic side, but also um, in terms of the organisations that we're working with and creating more accessible applications and processes. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. And I agree with you, Murphy. I do agree with you. And I think it's really heartening. And in the wake of, you know, the Black Lives Matters mm -hmm. protests, there were some funding programmes that and um, and funding providers that really made an effort to um, redress the imbalance that has been, you know, so strong historically with so many black communities, ethnic minority communities missing out, um, for example. So, so there have, there has been. You're absolutely right. There has been some really, really encouraging signs in the last couple of years. The question for us now is, can we, you know, will will this just just have been a, you know, um, kind of a nice interlude and then back to business as usual? I, I really, really hope not. I hope I hope we can between us all build up enough momentum. And I know that there are some people in the funding world, some of the, 
you know, highly respected funders that are kind of pushing in this direction as well. So, yeah, maybe this is a, you know, a, 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 this is a time to be more optimistic about all this. I think you might be right. I hope so. I, do, I think also just a time for, for, you know, each of us to hold each other to account, you know, if if you do see imbalances, we should be challenging them and taking, you know, more of a personal responsibility for those involved as well to to make sure we are, yeah, accountable for, for those decisions. Um, but yeah, there have been some some really exciting movements in this space. So It's about that long-term change, isn't it? We've touched on that today, actually talking about, you know, that long-term, if you want to do social change, it takes a long time and you've got to be committed to it. And I think that's the same with diversity and inclusion right now, I think in the sector is, yeah, we've had a really good sort of bubble the last couple of years on this subject, but actually are we in it for long-termism? Because I think that's what we need, isn't it? It reminds me when I, when I, um, in, I think it was in 2000, um, I took on the role of running an organisation called the Development Trust Association, which later became Locality. It's a network of community enterprises around the country. And the guy who was the, the chair of the organisation, the things he said to me when I started, it really stuck in my mind because he said, see, I know you'll want to kind of, you know, go all out for this. And there, there are lots of things you can probably do in the short term and, and get some good results and go for that. That'd be really, really important. It's so necessary. But also bear in mind, just keep at the back of your mind the, the truth that the things that most matter, the big changes that you want to see um, won't be possible to achieve straight away. You have to find a way of kind of carrying on working with them year in, year out. It'll probably take you about 15 years, he said, um, because because anything that is really worthwhile doing will take 15 years. That's what he believed. And I, he was about right. I mean, certainly in my experience there, it did take me about 15 years to, to, to build that network to the place I felt was strong enough to be able to step back and let somebody else take it over and move on. Um, and it took about 15 years to we were trying to address the you know very serious and undercapitalization of the community sector. Um, they simply didn't have assets, and we had this plan to transfer land and buildings into community ownership on a big scale. And we did it um, actually. I mean, of course, it could have been more, but we got about three quarters of a billion pounds of of land and buildings into community ownership. And in some parts of the country, which I can't claim credit for, but in Scotland, for example, two thirds of the Western Isles are now in community ownership. So, you know, it was possible, but it did take it did take quite a long time. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I, I hadn't realised that you had an involvement with locality, Steve. That's, yeah, that's one of the, the reasons I've landed in this space is doing community asset transfers or, or for the authority I was working for, I think there might have been more liability than assets. And actually, I was caught in the middle there because I was sort of trying to get justice for the community. So they had a fighting chance of making this thing work against the local authority. They just wanted to offload. And it was just, yeah, it was really, it was quite interesting work. But at times I felt very, you know, while employed by the local authority, I felt very much in the, in the community side of things. And they were the ones getting the sort of raw deal. Um, yeah, so it's really it's fascinating. We, I think we'll have a whole other episode on, on community asset transfers and community ownership. Yeah, we could do, couldn't we? And also about and also about the importance of people that can occupy that intermediary role between between um, the institutional world and the world of community activism or social activism. And um, and, and to degree, that's what Homeless Link is doing. I feel I should have a smarter statement to follow up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely missed the social investment conversation as well meant to pick up on that um again yeah i think yeah again it's probably another podcast episode but i think social investment ah it's frustrating isn't it 
you know, you picked up on the percentages there. So little has gone out of the door, you know, and I do think we've got to do something on that. But all, all we all we say is just not worked. I'm just putting that out there. I know there'll be some people that are really anti that, but I'm putting it out there, I guess, because I can. I like social investment. I think that it has huge potential. I think that we need to to do more. And, and I think a lot of it is actually about the, the sort of impact, how we talk about social investment, you know, we need to be holding diversity as as a huge part of that impact, you know, and 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 we don't do that more. And I think as funders, as program managers, project leaders, you know, that is kind of uh, in our ability to 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 do better on that. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's the answer to everything, but I think you know, I think this podcast has kind of highlighted this episode of that need for. Um, different models and different ways of doing things and finding what fits what's the right fit for different organizations and i think social investment in some cases is the right answer and 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 there are different types of social investment so when i was working at locality one of the big biggest successes and it's not something that has um you know extended enough maybe into other spheres including the homelessness sector but one of the biggest successes was around community shares more funds were getting through to the to community enterprises from the through the community shares route far far more funds than through the whole of the social investment world combined um and 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 this was really where community organizations would would say look we we have this plan we you know we're going to set up this wind turbine or we're going to um we're going to take over this building and turn it into a a viable community asset Um, but to raise some of the finance for it or, or or perhaps a community shop or a pub to raise some of the finance for it, we, we need some capital and we are appealing to our community, not for handouts, but to buy a share. And if you put in a, um, you know, a 50 pound share, then you can withdraw that somewhere down the line if you need the money back. Um, but in the meantime, we'll put that money to good use. Um, and they've been really successful. I mean, really successful. And, you know, um, small community organisations have raised sometimes, you know, half a million pounds, a million pounds for a, for a capital venture. Um, and it's hundreds of local people have invested in that. And, and, and it's not just the investment. It's also the, you know, that builds a pool of connected people um, to a social venture. Um, that's a fantastic asset in itself. So the community shares model as a you know where there is something that people can see the sense of it um and it's possible to see the to see a um a, 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 a commercial value in it as well um then it's a really really good option and um yeah maybe that's something to think about whether that you know in some cases within the homelessness world um a community shares community shares option could be a good route forward it's an incredible segue to our next episode, if I'm honest, Steve. We've got Tim Coomer from the Cooperative Community Fund um, coming on to talk about exactly that. <laughs> so, yeah, really interesting. And, it, and it's actually an area that I feel I know much less about than I would like to. So, yeah, it's, it's a big learning learning for me in this podcast, um, having the conversation around community shares, which has been fab. I feel like I should clarify the outrageous comment I made about social investment. And I, I, I'm in agreement with you both on this. It's brilliant in the right circumstances and in the right hands and in the right situation. But we're just not seeing enough of those situations. Um, it's my frustration with it, I think. Uh, just to clarify, but also I think the trade-up 
type school for social entrepreneurs model is also really powerful because I think a lot of the enterprises that I support, one of the reasons they don't do very well is they just don't get their head into trading. You know, this thing, this enterprise we created is about selling, it's about trading, it's about generating our own funds. And they and, and they still sort of dilly around a little bit going, oh, we're looking for a bit of grant money to get this, that and the other. And actually it's like, you know, actually this is about selling and sales and trading and you've got to go, go there. So I think that is a really, um, yeah, I think that is a really, good direction for sort of funders to go in I think within social enterprise because we're we're enforcing that message you know that it's about trade and sustainability. The conversation around kind of incentivized grants match trading you know is, is such a huge one and, and one one Steve I'd love to have with you I'm sure you've got loads of really interesting thoughts on that um, but I am aware ideal um, I am aware that we are stealing quite a lot of your morning. So I'm going to pass on to Simon for, I think, our penultimate question. Well, I think just bringing it all the way back round, Steve, if you were to start again, if you were mad enough to do this again and, and work in this space for another career, um, where would you go? What sort of enterprise would you create? If you could start again now, what, what would you be doing? Well, so I don't really, I don't really have a, a kind of... Um, um, a very easy answer to that. I think it. I think what I do feel is that there'd be um, a method that I would apply to it that probably I would feel is most going to get the get get me to the best place. And and, ba- and it's very simple. It's basically not to do it by myself, not to start off by myself. And and what I've discovered more and more. And I mentioned that I you know help to convene the better way now which brings small groups of people together to to kind of share experience and ideas and it's brought home to me it's very kind of simple truth that it's often when you bring together um, a highly motivated highly energized group of people who are different from each other you know who come from different backgrounds and different sectors and different life experiences that's when the magic happens that's when the really great ideas start emerging um, things that you couldn't possibly have imagined in advance, but something happens when you bring people together in that way. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's that's how I would work and encourage others to work, not kind of dream something up in isolation, um, but just to spend time with people that stimulate you and people who are different. And that includes people, and if you think about homeless, you know, the homelessness sector, that definitely includes people with you know, direct lived experience of, of being homeless in different ways. Um, um, it's it it, it 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 without any question in my mind. You know, it adds a different dimension to the sorts of discussions that take place and a richness to it. Um, and it means, in terms of enterprise development, that whatever it is that's produced is actually more likely to be useful. Um, um, so so, and I've seen that. I've seen that definitely. I've definitely seen that happen. Um, at Groundswell, because I'm on the board of Groundswell, I have been for a few years. I love that organisation. It's it, it always amazes and inspires me, um, and it's mainly because the the primary workforce in the organisation are people who've been long-term homeless, as and working as paid workers or volunteers, supporting now other homeless people around their health or things relating to that. Um, and it works because there's there's real value in that. There's real added value. Um, it's not just being done for some tokenistic reasons. Um, it, it's it works because the the people who are delivering that can add the value. So, so I'm rambling a little bit, but I think that it would come out of a it would whatever I did 
in the social enterprise sphere would would come out of those sort of high energy relationships that it's possible to have with small groups of people brilliant yeah brilliant answer uh, steve it's been so good to have you on this morning i could keep you on for a couple of hours actually and ask you a whole load of questions it's been really enjoyable thank you for giving me the chance to spend this time just you know help, helps me to think think about it as well good yeah it's been it's been brilliant i yeah like I said, Simon, I always think, oh, we should have had more than an hour. <laughs> they had these amazing guests on with these fabulous stories and ways of thinking, you know, and your your answer then was just so uh, motivating to me. You know, so much of my role at Homeless Link and with our social investment portfolio is, is about bringing people together and sort of facilitating that peer learning. And you're totally right, you know, being in a room with an hour of people that have different ideas is so much more exciting than sitting on your own. <laughs> like, you know, there's the ideas that come out and the the um, innovations that we see are are wonderful. So yeah, I'm I'm ready for my day now. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, where can if people want to sort of check out some of your work, if they wanted to get in touch, perhaps is there anywhere we can find you? Can I Twitter? So pro- pro- yes. So 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 probably the easiest thing is to Google the better a better way. And you can contact me through that. Um, there's a, a form on the website. And if you just send send a message to me through that form, um, then that would definitely get through to me. So a better way. Perfect. We'll, we'll link that as well to the episode so the listeners can, can find you. Um, but yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you. And uh, yeah, have a, good, have a good weekend. My pleasure too. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes or follow us on Twitter at thismuch underscore we know or email us at thismuchweknow at homelesslink.org.uk.